3: Hey, Ray. Hey, Marcus. How you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. Woke up a little bit sore after a big bike ride yesterday and did what I tend to do when I wake up really sore is grab a little CBD and I'm feeling better.
0: That's good. You know, our joints don't take exercise and extreme activities very well the older we get. And a lot of people who are younger are experiencing the same thing. That's why we're pretty excited about our sponsor, OneCBD. And a lot of people seem interested in the fact that One CBD is consciously created. They use 100% organic sources. They employ a holistic removal of all the THC, and but, they select the
3: best strains. And the strain is very important when working with controlling pain They are also halal and kosher compliant. They are non-GMO. They are made in the USA. And we've set
0: it up so that you can save 20% off your first order when you use the code balance. I I don't know. We're we're imbalanced, but we're using the code (laughs) balance, so keep that in mind. You go to onecbd.com. That's O N E C B D.com. And they're at One CBD Life on Twitter if you want to follow them there.
3: C B D in all forms, liquid, gel caps. And they give you the choice. All you have to do is hit their website, onecbd.com. It's One C B D. Manage your pain and achieve a renewed sense of balance.
0: Welcome to another episode of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Coob.
3: I'm Marcus in the Darkest.
0: And Marcus, this time out, we're going to talk about one of our favorite bands to talk about. We talk a lot about Queen.
3: Yeah, we do. And we're not talking Victorian Queen. We're not talking the Queen. We're definitely talking about Queen.
0: Oh, okay. The band. Yes, The band. We're not talking about Smile, the band? Mm, A later version
3: of Smile. That's true. That's what they are, actually. A better version of Smile.
0: Queen wouldn't become well-known until the 70s, but in the late 60s, he wasn't even Dr. Brian May then. He was just a college student. He wasn't an astrophysicist then. He was probably just a damn good guitar player. He formed a band with a guy named Tim Staffel, who is a bassist, and I think he's portrayed briefly in the movie bohemian rhapsody and not in a very uh, flattering light but they formed a band and it eventually included roger taylor on drums and uh deacon would come along and of course this kid fred balsara that everybody knew and then this is the funny part Tim Staffel decides he's gonna leave the band, or they were gonna kick him out. I can't remember. The movie, and we're gonna talk about that in a second. The movie has different stuff from what actually happened, but he leaves the band smile. All this is all when they're in their art college days, right? And he goes off to join a band, and I shit you not. The name of the band was called Humpy Bong. Now don't start
3: humping your bong, Marcus. I never hump the bong. But no, we have better uses. Yes, we do. <laughs> I didn't know this. I I just popped up uh, Humpy, Humpy Bong, and they they were a folk band, which I think is not what I was expecting. I was expecting something more garagey or proto-punky, and some Irish folk singer named Jonathan Kelly fronted the band, and then former Bee Gees drummer Colin Peterson uh, was the other member of the band.
0: Man, you came up with that info quick. Well done, man. Thank you. So uh, off he goes to Humpy Bong. The guys who are now in Smile they realize they need a different, better name for the band, and Freddie, being a bit of a queen himself even at that young age suggested queen now that's how it's portrayed in the movie but that's kind of how they came together and it wasn't till later that they settled on deacon
3: deaky wasn't in the band at the beginning they had this guy staff one then a couple other guys before like four bassists before they settled on uh deacon i
4: enjoyed the show i also write songs Our lead singer just quit, then you'll need someone new. And that's where
0: the movie Bohemian Rhapsody comes into play. There's the base of the earliest formation of the band there in our discussion. I wanna say for all the Queen fans, I'm with you. I loved the movie Bohemian Rhapsody, unqualified by all the little asterisks that the historic chronologic fans have decried since it was released. I just love the movie, Marcus.
3: I did too. I thought it was well put together. It flowed really well. The music was exceptional, and as we know, Queen's music over their career was unbelievable. Their albums were solid.
0: It took 20 guys doing different vocal parts throughout the movie to create one Freddie for the film. And Rami Malik deserved the Oscar. He did an amazing job of portraying a very difficult figure to portray. And if you remember, early on it was supposed to be Sasha Baron Cohen. And they reeled it in a little bit. And he didn't like the rewrite. They took out some of the more over the top stuff. And uh, that's how they ended up having Rami Malik in
3: it. Nothing against Sasha Baron Cohen because I absolutely love Sasha Baron Cohen. But I think Rami Malik had more of that Freddie vibe. As far as naturally goes, it seemed to flow out of him a little bit more. His demeanor
0: and the way he spoke reminded me more of Fred, although I think Cohen could have done it. His objection was that there wasn't enough depravity. That was in a nutshell. I understand why they didn't want to do that. It could have had a serious hurting effect on the outcome of the film itself and the response they got. But that's part of why Cohen pulled out.
3: Again, as much as I love Sasha Baron Cohen and his work and love the fact that he yeah. is as crazy as he is and as free and uninhibited as he is, Rami Malek had that vibe and that energy that seemed to be a lot closer to who Freddie Mercury was. Let's talk about the fact
0: that the movie is not historically accurate.
3: I hope people don't get upset when they find that out. They did a movie that was based on a lot of truths and a lot of the things that were told are accurate, but temporally they're inaccurate. They
0: either didn't happen in the order that they are portrayed or music is used that was from a later stage of the band's career versus the period which is being depicted. That's why if you look beyond that, you see it as a, a good or a great movie. The one thing that I think is indisputable Marcus is the last 20 minutes uh, the portrayal of their performance at Live Aid is as close to spot on as you're going to get they did an amazing job how they got Willem Lee to look so much like Brian May is amazing as in addition to everything else but beyond the 20 minutes of the performance of Live Aid there's timeline stuff that just doesn't work just didn't happen that way and that's what upset some of the purists I believe so you're talking Mm -hmm. about upsetting people I think in this matter you might upset people no matter what you say
3: that's true and I understand the side of the purists, but at the same time they have to make a movie that's successful so if they have to jumble a few things up and Hollywoodize it a little bit, that's what they That's what they did. Yeah. They do that with all with all stories, I mean, the Doors movie did Hollywoodized a bunch mm-hmm. of stuff. The Buddy Holly movie Hollywoodized sure. a bunch of stuff as well and changed the order and tweaked things just because in their original form, they may have been boring as hell or not right. I mean, there, they could have been many different things, but they didn't work with the flow of the story. And so they had to tweak the things to make the story flow.
0: I guess the, the knock on it is they didn't let the truth get in the way of telling a good story. And that's part of what Hollywood's about anyway,
3: right? That's true. And. And they weren't dishonest about their story. Again, They selected bits and pieces that flowed with the story that they wanted to portray or to make a solid movie and give you highlights of what Queen is about. And then, if you like Queen, you research them and you read about them and you learn about them and you listen to their music closely and you pop on their albums and listen to them all the way through. That's
0: what's been happening. This is another wave. Remember when we were talking about the doors and we talked about the waves of fans Mm -hmm. Uh, since the release of the movie? It's a whole other wave of Queen fans. Their music on all the streaming services, their sales, everything, their greatest hits packages have all sold and gone through the roof, well, at least initially in the first six months to a year. Mm-hmm. And they've continued to ride that wave of popularity fueled by the movie.
3: For as much as their greatest hits packages, the one, two, three discs are great. I highly recommend you get those early albums from the 70s and listen to them all the way through or stream them on a streaming service. Right. But when you're listening to them, listen to them all the way through. From beginning to end, song one through song whatever the last song is, in order, no shuffle, listen to them that way and get the feel of the album. It will make so much of a difference in listening, even the early albums. And we're going to break down some of these early albums of Queen a little bit later in the episode. And we'll talk about some of the things that we have noticed over the years listening to their music. But, again, you get a different feel for a band, when, and you get to know them in a special way when you listen to these albums all the way through, and you, you can feel who they are a little bit more when you have that experience, I think. God, sorry for getting all deep and bongosophical, dude. I love it, dude.
0: Queen is one of those bands that has enjoyed multiple resurgences. I guess the first one really came when Wayne's World put them in the movie movie right with Bohemian Rhapsody the car scene oh yeah of a sudden people are like oh yeah i gotta go back and listen to this people who didn't know them that well and there's been others periods of time there was a major remastering and reissuing of the albums back in the 90s that spawned more renewed interest in queen and then the bohemian rhapsody movie most recently and What it's done is it's only enhanced Their rock and roll immortality
3: Absolutely And you have to look at what they've done With Adam Lambert touring with the band as well And he's done a great job Keeping Freddie Mercury's legacy alive Nobody can sing like Freddie Mercury And we understand We're aware of who Freddie Mercury was And his voice and what it means to rock and roll But having seen Adam Lambert perform with Queen He does Freddie Mercury justice And he does him great
1: what do you require? Make a big noise Playing in the street Gonna be a big man someday You got mud on your face you big disgrace Kicking your cane all over the place Singing we
0: I would never have thought that I would have anything good to say about anyone who came out of American Idol, but Lambert really was an amazing find for the band at the time. And and let me back it up a second, before that, I saw them at the Spectrum, was the only time I ever saw them. Paul Rogers was in the band at the time. I adore Paul Rogers. His voice, his persona, who he is—great guy. Have worked with them and have hung out with them, and I just think he's like one of the coolest rock guys, right? Rock star—he's a rock star.
1: Another hero, another man has behind the curtain in the past.
0: This kid, Adam Lambert, nailed it in a way that Paul wouldn't and couldn't because he kind of did his own thing with it. When I was working at MGK, we did a listener poll, your favorite front man. We gave you the top three votes, right? Three, two, one, they did a point system. And at the end of the day, we counted it down. And at the end of the day, people think Freddie Mercury, by and by, could be or is in their mind. The greatest frontman of all time. Look what the guy did every
3: show. His voice was magnificent. I mean, yeah. magical. You get goosebumps when he hits all those notes and, and when he just lays it all out. But special, I guess, would be one of the words that I would uh, describe or magical would be one of the words I would use because he had that special thing that like Jimi Hendrix had like uh, Janis Joplin had, like Buddy Holly had, you know, that special thing.
0: It's the intangible thing, the thing you can't quite put your finger on. But with him, what did he have, like a four-octave range or something? Maybe five-octave range. It could be. And he ended up doing uh, a project with one of the great opera singers of retirement. And I don't have it at my fingertips. Maybe we can get the research department to work on during the break. But So he had that ability to do that. And he took it and he applied it to rock music, being a pop star, being him, being himself. And had he pursued a more classical path, I believe that Freddie Balsara would have had to have stayed closeted and not be able to be his true self and maybe not have enjoyed life as much up until the end when he got sick. Which, by the way, this is one of my bones to pick with the movie. And that is that it comes off as this whole leading up to live aid, they find out, the band finds out, and he finds out, and then he moves past it and all that. And I know they're condensing and they're rearranging stuff. That was one of my bones to pick because he didn't find out that he had AIDS until after that after Live Aid. Mm-hmm. So, again, don't want to spend too much time talking about Bohemian Rhapsody, the movie. We want to talk about Bohemian Rhapsody, the song, and all the other great songs that Queen made in the time that we had them living in the same time. It's Freddie Mercury and Brian May making all that amazing music. And John Deacon who wrote a lot of
3: it, too. As a band, they wrote their a lot of their music together and a few other people sang on songs that weren't Freddie Mercury throughout their career, especially on those early albums. Uh, Deacon sang a few uh, uh, they well, Roger all, Taylor Roger also Taylor sang
0: I'm In Love With My Car, and he yep. sang on songs on a couple records, too.
3: And they all did the backing vocals. And, man, if there's one thing that they did and maybe we're very big innovators of, and we'll talk about this throughout the uh, music when we break it down and their ascension to royalty, they layered the shit out of vocals. They didn't use keyboards. They didn't use synthesizers. They didn't use effects. They layered and layered and layered until it sounded right.
0: And that's one place where the movie got it right. The scene where Roger Taylor is in the sound booth doing the Galileos over and
4: over and over. Galileo!
1: Galileo!
0: How was that?
4: Freddy? Higher. Can you go a bit higher? If I go any higher, only dogs will hear me. Try. Freddy's note, sorry. Oh, Go on, roll the tape.
1: Uh, overdub 24 of French.
2: How was that? Better?
4: Higher. Jesus, how many more Galileos do you want? Freddie wants to do uh, a few more overdubs. Do we even have any tape left? I do have to say, the tape is wearing out. It can't take much more. Dub 26 of uh, Fred's thing. One more, one more. One more. Again. Go on, roll the track. Who even is Galileo?
0: My nuts feel like they're in my chest right now. Are we done? That's it. And you know, in those days, and it's hard for people to understand who record digitally now, you had to be careful because you could just wear the ferrous oxide right off the tape mm-hmm. if you overplayed it and over rewound and played and re-recorded and, and add and add and add. But that's what they did. And that's how they, they got that amazing sound in Bohemian Rhapsody, which we're going to talk a little bit more about as we get into the second half of our podcast today. You know, there's another factor in this whole thing. What? named Roy Baker, who later added his middle name because it sounded cooler, I think. Uh, Roy Thomas Baker, he's in Ken Scott's book about recording and engineering often. And they were kind of contemporaries back there at EMI before it became Abbey Road Studios. And he talks a lot about him and also the increasing role that he played in the ascension to the throne by the band
3: queen. Hey, before we take our break, I got a text from the research committee. Oh, that was quick. It was very quick. the opera singer that Freddie Mercury performed with was 1987. It was Montserrat Caballe.
0: And I've heard some of the work they did together. I it's, couldn't remember her name, but some of the work that they did together is just beautiful.
1: I had this perfect dream. Sueño me volvio. This dream was me and you. My is me. I want all the world to see. A miracle sensation, sensation my guide inspiration. Now my, light, my
3: Go find
0: it somehow. Just it's on type YouTube. in Google, Google Freddie Mercury opera singer, and you'll find it. it's just beautiful stuff. Thanks for doing that, research department. You rock.
3: Yeah, thank you, research department. Amazing. Whew, after all that, should we go get a beer? <laughs> <laughs> I'm thirsty, bro. Time for a beer. You know, one of the
0: things that I appreciate is anytime I go into Crooked Eye Brewery, right there at York and Montgomery in the heart of Hatbro. Always feel good. And that includes feeling safe about where we're hanging out. You know what I'm talking about, Marcus?
3: I definitely know what you're talking about as during the COVID pandemic, it is important that people feel safe when they're going out and about. Very important. And Crooked Eye has that warm, safe vibe.
0: And they're doing everything according to the governor's directions. They, they know that that's what's in everyone's best interest. But they're still serving, Marcus. That's right. The takeout, your growler, your crowler, your 16-ounce cans, all still there. All the wonderful flavors that you love about Crooked Eye Brewery.
3: And don't forget when you stop in to get your takeout brews, wear a mask.
0: Absolutely. And I think one of the things that Pete and Paul and Jeff and everybody, and we're learning too, is that it's a constantly changing landscape when it comes to what's going on. So I would urge all of you to follow Crooked Eye Brewery on Facebook, and you'll find out just what's going on there today, tomorrow, next week, and as things change.
3: Crooked Eye Brewery, right in the heart of Hatboro.
0: pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014, and we thank them for their support of the podcast. Back on the imbalanced history of rock and roll Marcus you know what it takes to make a Hall of Fame level band an amazing band even greater right?
3: Absolutely a lot of work and songs great songs
0: Now in the early days of Queen we've actually had an intersection with Queen's career Uh, just a few episodes ago when we talked to Lawrence Myers he told us about his dalliance with the Sheffield Brothers who ran Trident Studios and were getting into management and their attempt to sell him the contract for Queen which didn't happen and they ended up working with John Reed who also ended up being a couple with and working with Elton John so he was a pretty powerful guy, Reed and the fact that two of his clients were two of the most, at that point closeted gay men in rock and roll I don't think is complete coincidence he understood them and I think he could work with them in ways that maybe some straight people couldn't. They were all living in a big closet. Yeah. That part is something that's hard to relate here in the 21st century but in the early 70s everybody was in the closet and it wasn't right but that's the way it was, so there was understanding amongst the gay community that was still way more underground.
3: And I remember everything being in the closet. The first time things came out of the closet, obviously, for me, as far as public and music goes, was the Village People in 1976 at the beginning of disco. You and
0: know, I had inklings about Bowie before that, but I didn't know. It
3: was Yeah, he, yeah. Was, he was more bisexual, and I think Freddie was bisexual, yeah. too. And it's really sad that Hollywood had to do it all through the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Careers yes. were ruined because you were bisexual or homosexual. And there were some huge names that were homosexual and bisexual in the early days of Hollywood and in those golden days that had to live their lives completely under wraps, which I can only imagine was very tough and explains maybe some of the addiction issues and some of the depression issues and some of the early deaths.
0: It's a recurring theme here on the podcast for sure. So here in the second half of this week's episode, let's jump into the music. And I guess we got to start with their first release as Queen. Uh, It was just called Queen, July 1973. And it got some reaction. I mean, uh, the first two singles are still songs that resonate for me. Keep Yourself Alive is an anthemic song written by Brian May. And the thing that was neat was it started the beginning of the trio vocals. It was the first song on the first album, and it had that texture of the three of them doing over overlaid harmonies.
3: It also gave you a feel for what Queen's sound was going to become as they grew and as they evolved and as they developed and as they played together and as they wrote together. It gave you more of a feel for who Queen would become.
0: The other one that came out as a single, and it didn't do great but I still have it on a uh, promo 45 somehow, somewhere,
3: is Liar, and that's all Freddie. That's a great tune. That really is another great tune. I really enjoyed this album a lot listening back to it, and we just And there's some definite inconsistencies where you can feel that they're developing their sound and they're growing as a band and they're coming together. And there's an innocence and a naivete in their sound that comes with the youth. And you hear that innocence and naivete like I mentioned it in U2 and boy and how that was so relatable to me because I was near their age at that time, and I, it really related, and I heard that sort of innocence and youthfulness in that very first Queen album, but you also had a direction of where they were headed and a feel for where they were headed and how they were going to grow, hopefully.
0: You also see where they were in the development of songwriting. Uh, some of the songs on the first record were part of the demo. They start the tradition of having instrumentals as part of the record with the Seven Seas of Rye, which Freddie would flesh out and put a full-blown version on the next record, Queen 2, which came out in March of 74. These records were getting them more attention in UK than they were getting in the US. They were getting some airplay off of the singles off the first record. I don't remember hearing any of these songs, although I'm sure the stations that were like WMMR in in 74 were playing some of it. I don't remember hearing any of these songs on the radio in their time. What those two first records did is the same kind of thing that ZZ Top did with their first two, three records. It was artist development. Electra was going into different directions, and they were going to let them kind of play it out and see how it went, right? It's kind and- of funny when you think of the famous bohemian rhapsody conversation in the movie but at this stage of the game they were trying to find out who they were and start evolving and you would see roger taylor doing a song and you would see deacon starting to write songs and that leads to them going in the studio later in 74 there's two albums that came out in the same year that really turned the corner they didn't have much success with the second record but sheer heart attack oh my
1: avoid never kept the same address just like a baroness, middleman, trino, indigation minor I've then killer, again incidentally in mid-that-way The love came naturally from Paris naturally. She Forgot she couldn't get as and precise She's a killer, queen, gunfight, agility Dynamite with a laser beam Guaranteed to blow your mind
0: That was the indicator of where they were going to be going and what they were going to be doing as a band over the next
3: eight, nine years, solid. You mentioned Elektra Records. Jack Holtzman, who was a bigwig at Elektra in '72, saw what Queen was when he saw when you know they started recording them, and he said this in a company memo in 1972: "I have seen the future of pop music, and it is a band called Queen." Great vision, Jack Holtzman—a great
0: man of vision and a great record man.
3: He also was very instrumental, along with everybody else in the label, in making sure that Queen got developed and they did that with artists, and that is one of the big important things that was left behind in the music industry as we move forward into the 80s, 90s, and beyond. There was no artist development like there was then. It's one
0: of those things that makes me wonder how we're going to move forward ultimately with music. Well, there they are, just before Christmas 1974, sheer heart attack, Roy Thomas Baker fully at the helm of this one. Changing the tone and direction, Killer Queen becomes a smash hit. Still gets played on just about every rock station in America today, right?
3: We still play it. I don't think there's ever been a time that I've been here at MMR for the last 18 years that it's not been in rotation.
0: But beyond that, for me, I was in high school, and this album became part of the party soundtrack. Somebody would show up at somebody's house, parents were away for the weekend. You know the deal. Everybody bring their records over, and you'd have a party. Songs like Brighton Rock became part of our thing, you know? Happy lap of the gods and one was a closet classic forever metallica helped to bring it back when they did the uh, album for the anniversary of the label was stone cold crazy songs are enduring. The album went right to selling gold where the first two took a while but eventually got there with the diehard fans and it put them on the radio it put them in the US and sets off that entire firestorm of touring that's portrayed in the movie Bohemian Rhapsody
3: And it's funny that you were uh, listening to the Sheer Heart Attack album at parties with your friends I was uh, listening to the radio in the dark with the nightlight on reading books listening to songs like that because I was like 8 years old 9 years old when this came out and it was new. So that was my indoctrination to Queen.
0: You know what I really liked? It's a bit of the uh, old school schmaltzy stuff was uh, Freddie Mercury's Bring Back That Leroy Brown. It's on there. That probably appealed to you as a kid if you heard the album, because it was different than a lot of the orchestral type stuff that they were doing, the progressives. down. They moved into more of a rock vein, maybe delivering on the promise that Jack Holtzman had made a few years back, you know?
3: I haven't even thought of this very much, even though it's been blatantly obvious. The glam part of their band is gigantic. The glam influence on Freddie Mercury is just huge.
0: I think it's centered in Freddie, because the other guys were rock stars, and they weren't (laughs) above the rock star trappings, whether it was fashion or hair or clothes, whatever, right? But Freddie really, he was covered in glitter. Dude, and it wasn't just his sexuality. He had something
3: that
0: we hadn't seen before. He was truly a
3: showman. He had that special stage presence. Just watch the video of him at Live Aid and how he just blew everybody away. That is the perfect example of who Freddie was as a showman and a leader. And with the glitter and the glam and the glitz and it again like you said has nothing to do with sexuality it's purely an artistic show persona and he had all of that he was so charismatic so charismatic on stage
0: that was the miracle of the movie in my mind that they were able to capture that in a way that really did represent what actually happened that day at live aid and if sheer heart attack Marcus was part of my party soundtrack in my high school years the next record released in the middle of my senior year I think it was the same week
3: I got laid for the first time <laughs> <laughs>
0: a night at the Opera man it was unbelievable
3: I remember listening to Bohemian Rhapsody as a little kid and being blown away by it and Near are my best friend which I fell in love with right away I remember hearing that on the radio as well I remember hearing those songs I mentioned earlier that having an
0: instrumental as part of the album became part of the ritual of making a record, and that continues. But Brian May, not only does he write a song, he's emboldened by Roger Taylor's performances on vinyl to record vocals on a song on this record called 39, which you probably recall. When I first heard it, I went, well, this definitely isn't Fred, and had to listen a little more closely on I'm In Love With My Car, which was written and performed vocally by Roger Taylor. right at the beginning it's death on two legs classic freddy lazing on a sunday afternoon it's again classic freddy sounding feeling and then you get the taylor song and then you get john deacon's you're my best friend that was one of the songs that roy foster portrayed in the movie by mike myers and it's very funny scene which i'm certain is exaggerated but he wanted you're my best friend right and he was even more interested in having i'm in love with my car which you knew wasn't going to happen because it wasn't freddie singing but
4: he was so against bohemian rhapsody well I'm not entirely sure that's the album you promised us. No, it's better than the album we promised you. It's better than any album anyone's ever promised you, darling. It's a bloody masterpiece. Christ. It is a good album, Ray. I prefer masterpiece. It's expensive. And as for Bohemian, <coughs> Rhapsody. Rhapsody. What is that? An epic poem. It goes on forever six bloody minutes. I pity your wife if you think six minutes is forever. <laughs> and do you know what? We're going to release it as our single. <laughs> Not possible. Anything over three minutes and the radio stations won't program it, period. And what on earth is it about, anyway? Scaramouche, Galileo, another all that Ismilla business. Ismilla? Ismilla. What's that about, anyway? Bloody Bizmilla. Three minutes is the standard. What about I'm in love with my car? You're joking. Oh. Oh, Jesus. I love that. Well, that's the kind of song teenagers can crank up the volume in their car and bang their heads to. Bohemian Rhapsody will never be that song. It's a band decision. Mm. Bohemian Rhapsody. That's Mm. it. You're my best friend, and it's my money. Bo-rap. Period. Or we walk. I'm not arguing bohemian whatever is musicianship. But there's no way now the station will play a six-minute quasi-operatic dirt comprised of nonsense words. Bismillah
0: bullshit! And again, it was probably exaggerated for the movie and condensed. The whole process was condensed for the movie. But I think it's safe to say that Foster didn't have a positive view of the song for all the reasons that the character expounds in the movie. It's too long, what's Scott O'Mouche, what's all this stuff. But they stuck to their guns. We see a lot of this in rock and roll, don't we? They stuck to their guns, and they were right.
3: Who was it that we were talking to that said the executives Chris France said the executives don't know very much about music. It's the musicians who do. And he joked about that when we spoke with him. But he was right, because I'm sure with their sound, they had to do a lot of battles with executives, too. The
0: people who work behind the scenes who actually do understand musicians are seen as the geniuses, if you want to say. That's very true. And the people who did understand music, who worked behind the scenes in the music business, like a Chris Blackwell said, they understood musicians and how music was made, and that was their primary focus. They are the ones who
3: artists love to work with. And like you said, you know, they're the ones who are labeled geniuses because they understood the artists and let the artists do their thing. And they knew that if it was a good thing, it would do well because good art in music form does usually pretty well.
0: The next song on the album that I want to talk about is Love of My Life, which really was sincerely written with Mary Austin who Freddie stayed close to his whole life, even though they were engaged at one point and the reality of his sexuality came into play and they no longer were a couple. They stayed close. And he wrote that for her. And I remember the scene in the movie, and I don't know if it really happened, where he's playing her the video of them performing in Rio and all those people singing Love of My Life and knowing the song, which was a surprise to her, I suppose, being you know stuck over in England this whole time.
3: It's a powerful song. I'm surprised it didn't do a little bit better on radio because even though it was a ballad, or a slower song, it uh, had a lot of depth to it.
0: I guess when you have so many great songs on an album like you do on A Night at the Opera, you know, the the monster that is Bohemian Rhapsody, You're My Best Friend, stuff like that. Maybe they just didn't get down to that far before they were ready to make the next record, which still in the mid-70s they were trying to make a record and put it out every six to nine months and, and tour in between. It was really that write-record-tour cycle. And uh, some would say like being on a hamster Wheel, I guess. We <laughs> like for a lot of musicians who were doing it. They were making tons of dough and doing what they wanted to do, but a lot of them ended up needing a break because they felt like they were on the hamster wheel.
3: And both physically and mentally, it was grueling on them. Being on a tour bus for six, eight months, nine months a year kicks your ass. And that lifestyle kicks your ass. It's not an easy lifestyle.
0: Well, they say it's not the miles, it's the mileage. Yes. You
3: know? <laughs> that is true.
0: So, 1976 comes along. It's been a while between albums. The band is now producing themselves after Roy Thomas Baker's pinnacle of achievement with Bohemian Rhapsody. And they do A Day at the Races. Again, uh, the titles based on the names of Marx Brothers movies.
4: Well, go ahead and read it. What does it say? Well, go on and read it. But right, after you read it, all right, I'll read it to you. Can you hear? I haven't heard anything yet. Did you say anything? Well, I haven't said anything worth hearing. Well, that's why I didn't hear anything. Well, that's why I didn't say anything.
0: Uh, both A Night at the Opera and A Day at the Races were Marx Brothers movies, and I, I, well, I thought that was very clever of them at the time when they were releasing. At this point, I think they're ready to crown Queen. You know, there they are. So. It's the middle of the 70s. There's a band that epitomizes 1970s rock and roll and lifestyle. And they're about to be coronated. And they come back with this record in 1970, end of 1976. And it's got hits. Uh, Tie Your Mother Down, Brian May song. also got You Take My Breath Away, one that wasn't really a big hit for them, but is part of the current Queen songbook that people go to when they start to discover them. And you also got somebody to love, one of their most enduring hits. critics as much. It didn't catch or exceed the success of A Night at the Opera, which in record company terms in those days was... A sign that it wasn't successful, let's say that
3: It's funny, we see a lot of careers Like this where with, with a lot of these Great bands where they have these monster albums And then the album right after that Is considered a letdown Because it doesn't achieve the same Status as that Even if it sells a million, right? albums. If you listen to a day at the races Up and down all the way through, you're gonna find It's pretty goddamn good and It is Up it really and down, it's, it's a great record Other than Brian May singing one song, Roger Taylor singing one song. It's all Freddie Mercury. And by this point, the band has pretty much moved to almost all Freddie Mercury on vocals. I don't think you should discount it or criticize this record just because it's not the same as A Night at the Opera, but again, it's different, and it shows you the versatility and the strength and the power of Queen.
0: And I think that what you were saying there about disappointing follow-up records is true with a lot of bands, Marcus. We've seen it time and time again, and when you come out and sell over three million copies of an album and the next one just sells a million, that's a lot less and I've always thought, yeah, but you know how many bands never get to sell a million once? Most. You know, there's not even a number that you can put on it because you don't know. It's it's that kind of thing. So that's what gets them onto the throne as queen, right? Ascending to the throne, taking the throne. There they are. They're on top of the world, ma night at the opera bohemian rhapsody follow-up singles the whole nine yards sometimes it's just natural to have a a little bit of a letdown and if you can call a day at the races a letdown considering the music that's on that album then you're being very judgmental and that's part of being a fan too i suppose what would come in the next few years for this band is pretty astounding, Marcus, and we wanted to just kind of talk about those early days leading up to them becoming the band that everyone was talking about in the mid-70s. I don't know about you, but I've learned some things, and I really enjoy talking about one of my favorite bands, and what's really neat for me as an old guy is to see people my younger kids' age, in their 20s, embracing the music of Queen another generation. And if the kids who got into it because of seeing Bohemian Rhapsody get into it, that's another generation down the line. The kids who are now you know, 18 or 19. So it's kind of cool to see that happen no matter how it happens. But in the end, Queen left us with a legacy that continues today on a limited basis with a different singer, obviously. But we wanted to just talk about these exciting early times for the band, talk about what they did, talk about and share all the music that they did that excited us about what was going to come next, just months away in 1977. So does that mean we have to
3: do another Queen episode? I think we're going to have to do at least one more Queen episode, and at some point we should break down a night at the opera for people and go through it track by track and really... Now you're talking, bro. Now you're
0: talking. (laughs) As always, bro, I always have fun. Uh, Part of the fun for us is getting ready because Mm. we try to absorb as much as we can musically and informationally and everything we can and finding some funny little stories and minutia. But with Queen, a lot of it is very public. And I don't know that we had any major revelations in this episode, but it's still fun to do.
3: Oh, it's always fun to talk about the band Queen because of their great music that they've put out and the fact that they're all very interesting and very intelligent personalities as well. Every single one of them very smart. Every single one of them very quirky. Every one of them very unique and very talented. And together, their chemistry was unbeatable in so many ways. Like all of the other great bands, they had that chemistry. And while they may not always get along. they still had that chemistry and they respected that chemistry and there was enough respect and friendship there most of the times even when times were rough where they were still okay
0: and i think they did a great job i want to say with the casting of the band in the movie bohemian rhapsody let's start with with john deacon portrayed by joe Mazzello. And I think a lot of people went, I know that face. I don't know why. And when they went on their IMDb, found out that he was Tim in the original Jurassic Park movie. Oh, that guy. And they went, shit on a shingle, man. What the fuck? Right. And then you get Ben Hardy, who played Roger Taylor, and you recognize his face, but you don't know why. And then you realize that he was in the X-Men. He was the angel in X-Men and a lot of other roles that he's had through the years. And Gwilym Lee is actually one of the most amazing transformations to become Brian May. His career is more British-based and very diverse. But here he is, the perfect lookalike, especially with that Howard Stern wig, Uh, he looked perfect as Brian May. And when you put the two side by side, Gwilym in the movie And Brian, in those days, it's scary
3: how close they Mm -hmm. looked. One of the many successes of the movie was the fact that they were able to get people who resembled closely or pretty damn spot on to the original characters and the importance of that is huge.
0: And that extends to Rami Malek of course who played Freddie in the Mm -hmm. movie and got an Academy Award for it so I thought that was pretty cool.
3: His performance was fantastic and again like we've stated not historically accurate but still put together very well. He did a great job giving you a feel for who Freddie Mercury was if you weren't familiar with him or you didn't know who he was until you saw the movie
0: If you haven't seen the movie or if you have if you've listened to Queen or you haven't, if we've taught you anything or we haven't on this podcast, I strongly urge you to follow Marcus's suggestion and go pick out one of those albums. Pick out A Night at the Opera. Pick out A Day of the Races or Sheer Heart Attack or go back to the first two and listen to them in their entirety. You can do it. There's no excuse. In I order. did it. We did it on Spotify very easily to pull it up in the right order and get the feel for what Queen's already about. You know the hits. Mm-hmm. Dig deeper, kids. But Dig deeper.
3: I agree. And especially that first album, I recommend you listen to it because you'll see the youthfulness of their sound and their vibe and their energy, but you can also feel the direction that they're headed in. And it's really kind of cool being able to go back and look at it that way.
0: It's all about Queen taking the throne and becoming the band that uh, did what so many Hall of Fame artists do, and that is change the way things were by their mere presence and what they did in rock and roll.
3: (laughs) So, if you have any comments, if we missed anything, if we left out any information, please email us, imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Twitter, ImbalancedHisto, our Facebook page, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. But again, another way to let us know, imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. We'd love to hear feedback from you. We'd love to hear, you know, thoughts. We'd love to hear information that we missed. We know we miss facts, and we know that we're going to make mistakes. So please, if we make a mistake, let us know.
0: One thing I just found while we were wrapping up here is why the guys in Queen had so much time to work on their, their demos and uh, their first couple records. They were managed by the Sheffield brothers, right? Norman mm-hmm. Sheffield who came up in the episode where we talked to Lawrence Myers. He and his brother owned Trident Studios, which was one of the biggest studios in London at the time. So when all the other contracted times wasn't being used, there was open hours, as um, Roger Taylor later described it, the gold dust hours, where nothing was being done and otherwise the studio would be empty, they would just go in and do stuff. They were into that artist development thing too, and uh, they they speak for all the artists who needed a little time to develop and become one of the greats, to take the throne of rock and roll, so to speak.
1: <laughs>
0: well, we put this one on the board a couple months ago. I've been having a blast. I know you have been too. I see you smiling uh, through... We been doing these episodes remotely, and I see you smiling through the Skype window the whole time while you're talking, so it's really cool, man.
3: Oh, yeah. Queen, seriously, how can you not feel good and smile when you listen to the music of Queen or you think about the band Queen and what they bring to the rock and roll table? Just unbelievable how they fuse so many styles. And if you notice, a lot of those early British bands have jazz-based drummers. Have you noticed that? Almost all of them are jazz-based drummers, so if you have a child who's a drummer, if you drum, Learn jazz.
0: And we will step aside. Normally we come in and we exit with the music of our dear friend Rick DeFonso. Find out about his music at rickdefonso.com. But we thought it would be appropriate the strains of Dr. Brian May playing us out. It's God Save the Queen. And God Save this podcast.
3: <laughs> I'm Ray Coombe. I'm Marcus in the Darkest.
0: And we'll be saving more than just Queen if we can keep doing episodes of the Imbalance History
3: of Rock and Roll.